Live from the Pacific Northwest, it's Portland Story Theater's Urban Tellers. Real. True. Stories. May the narrative be with you. I grew up in a large house on the top of a hill in a green and leafy suburb outside New York City. As the youngest of four kids, quite a bit younger than my older sisters and brother, I didn't really spend a lot of time in that house all together with my family. My dad had a big job in the city. He was always working. My sisters were teenagers in the 60s when I was a kid. They were always off doing their teenage thing. My brother, four years older than me, was out with his friends in the neighborhood. So I was at home with my dog and my mom, or I was across the street with my best friend and her family. Except for every year when the Clark family took our iconic family vacations to the Outer Banks of North Carolina, um, a little town called Kitty Hawk, which is where Wilbur and Orville flew their first airplane. Um, we were not a, an organized family by any means, but these trips were almost ritualistic in their organization. Every year the same. My mom would wake us up really early in the morning, 5 or 5.30. I'd go out to the car, the family station wagon in the driveway, and on top there would be two big black trunks, one full of our luggage, our clothes for a month's vacation because we went for the whole month of August, and the other full of books. Because the one thing that these cottages that we rented, these ramshackle cottages we rented year after year, had in common was... They didn't have TVs, they didn't have a telephone, they didn't have really any way we could contact the outside world at all. It was just the beach, the ocean, our books, and each other for a month. And that's re really where I got to know my family best uh, on those vacations. So I'd, I'd get in the car, my dad, we always had, we had our designated spots. You know, my dad's at the wheel, my mom's riding shotgun, my oldest sister Jenna's in the middle, because, you know, she claimed car sickness. My grandparents, like me, were just happy to be along. They're squeezed in the middle seat. My next sister Jane beside them, and then Champy, my brother, and I in the way back with the dog. No seatbelts. Um, one hand, I'd have a big stack of comic books because we could buy all the comic books we wanted for this journey. It was about a 10 or 12 hour drive down to down south. Um, and the other hand, a bag of Lifesavers and chewing gum because my dad's theory was that they would not make us thirsty so we wouldn't have to go to the bathroom, which was good because we weren't allowed to go to the bathroom unless we needed to fill up the tank with gas. So there we'd be, and we'd be in the car, and we're driving down the New Jersey Turnpike, and the windows are open, and the, you know, my dad's chain smoking, camel non filters, and the ashes are flying out the front and window and coming in the back, and, you know, I'm just sick. I'm sick with just the earliness of the day. I'm sick with the smells, you know, the cigarette smell mingled with the smell of the paper factories on the New Jersey Turnpike, you know, mingled with that really sickening sweet smell of juicy fruit gum or even worse, spearmint gum. Um, but I was also sick with excitement because 
I was in this car with my whole family, all eight of us, and we were going to be together for the next 10 hours, and then we were going to be together for the next four weeks, just us. And they were just going to have to let me in. They were going to have to let me hang out with them. They were going to have to let me be part of them, and they did every year, year after year. And that's where I really got to know my family best. That's where I really, you know, grew to love them the most, I think. So flash forward, you know, 45 years or so, and um, my family now is all spread out. I'm living in Portland. My brother, Champ, is in L.A. My sister, middle sister, Jane's in D.C., and my mom's moved up to live near her. My dad's died of, you know, cancer, and um, my grandparents, of course, are long gone. And my oldest sister, Jenna, She's moved back to the beach. She's moved back to Kitty Hawk, you know, the place that my family was happiest. And after kind of a wild child, hippie chick existence, she's raised her two daughters on her own, and they just have turned out to be like fabulous girls. One of them's out there. And, um, and, and the one that's out there moves to Portland. She's, her girls have graduated from college and left home, and, and her oldest has moved to Portland, and she's staying with me for a while, and she's sitting at my kitchen counter one night, and she says, oh, Julie, I forgot to tell you this. You know, this really weird thing happened this ra- when I was at home. This random guy came up to me, the guy, this guy who hangs out at the bar next to my mom's house, and he, he came up to me and he said, I'm really worried about your mom. She's in trouble. She's drinking too much. I think you guys need to do something about it. And my heart just sank because I knew it was true. And I'd known it for a while. But I didn't know what to do about it. So the thing about my family is we can all drink. We all have the capacity to put away a lot of alcohol. We have the Clark family gene, you know, and they're not pretty. But we also kind of have a, 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 a system of kind of controls or checks and balances, you know like that come in the form of a nine to five job, a husband, kids around, you know, all those things that keep you from maybe pouring a glass of wine at at lunch or, you know, even breakfast, you know. (laughs) But for my sister, I think some of these controls were no longer in place, especially after her her daughters left home. Or maybe it wasn't even that. Maybe she's just a little further along in her alcoholism, you know. I mean, she's the oldest after all. She's always been the trailblazer. I don't know. But any way you look at it, when a random stranger comes up and says, you need to do something, you need to help her, help someone you love, you have to do it. I felt we had to do something. So I do what I always do, and I got on the phone, and I called my other sister. And she called my mom, and my mom called my brother, and my brother called me, and then we called everybody else that we could think of until we found somebody, really an angel, um, whose name was actually Gabriel, um, in the guise of a 75-year-old recovered alcoholic and professional interventionist. And he agrees to, for about $150, to talk us through this whole thing called an intervention. And he says that what we need to do is we write letters. And our letters should tell how much we love, what we love about the person. And that part was easy. And then how alcohol has changed that person. And, and 
for the worse. And that, w- that part was really hard. And we don't get to just mail these letters, unfortunately. That would have been easy. But we have to actually deliver the letters and read them to the person. So that, that was the plan. So we write our letters, and my brother and I fly back east. And we meet up with my mom and, and my sister, and we get in that car, and there's that family vehicle heading down to North Carolina again. And this time it's not a... Um, station wagon, it's a minivan, and my sister's at the wheel, my 85-year-old mom, you know, she's riding shotgun, and my brother and I are still in the back. And this time I'm not sick with excitement, and I'm not sick with car sickness, but I am sick with anxiety and fear, because it's just such a risk, the risk. It just feels so risky, and the risk is that we're going to lose her, that we're going to go down and confront her our sister, our oldest sister, and she's going to walk. She's going to turn her back on us, and and she's never going to come back. We're going to lose her. It was a long drive down there to North Carolina thinking that. And we get to this seedy hotel that we rented rooms at, and, you know, really the only thing that had in common with the, the cottages we used to rent was it had that ocean view. It was right on the ocean. And we go in, and her girls come to meet us. Um bringing with them one of my sister's best friends who was a very brave, intrepid man to come. And they also bring her bartender, which Gabriel had said was a, was a really awesome touch, you know, because it's hard to deny the truth of your bartender. <laughs> and so they came in and we're just, we're walking through from room to room. We had two rooms and we're practicing our letters and I'm looking out the window and the ocean is pounding like my heart and it's churning like my stomach and we just reach, you know, kind of a, just a fevered pitch of, I don't know if you could call it excitement, maybe hysteria. And then there's a knock at the door and my sister walks in. We've tricked her to coming over. She thinks she's meeting friends for brunch. She walks in the room, and she sees us, you know, her whole family. And for the first time in my life, my sister is not happy to see me. She's not happy to see us. She's horrified. She's appalled. And she, she backs up, you know, she's, she backs up to leave. But my brother's closed the door. And he asks her, you know, just sit down. Just sit down and hear our letters. Just listen to us. That's all you have to do. So she does, and her girls sit next to her on the bed with their arms around her, and we give her, you know, a big old glass of wine because Gabriel said that was, that was important, you know, so she wouldn't, you know, so she'd feel comfortable. So she, she's crying, and we read our letters. And, you know, our letters are, our letters are of love and of loss. And they're good. They're good letters, and they're powerful, but they are nothing compared to the letters her girls read. Because her girls, you know, her girls talk about what kind of mom she was. And she, she was a great mom, you know. And they talk about the, the birthday parties on top of double-decker buses and the Mardi Gras cakes and, you know, the, the meals and the friends and the fun and just the nurture and the love that they got from their mom every day. And then they talk about how they... They miss that mom. They don't have her anymore. She's gone. She's already gone, and and they want her back. So by the end of the letters, my sister's undone. She's got nowhere to go, and I don't know why I ever thought that she would turn her back on us because 
we were there. We were everything. We were her family. So, of course, she came with us, you know. She just walked right out. She got in that car. We didn't even stop to get her underwear. We drove 10 hours back north, took her to a hospital, and that's where she began her recovery. And she hasn't had a drink since. It's been five years, and my sister hasn't had a drink. And I am so proud of her so proud and I'm so proud of myself and my family because together we faced you know the eye of the tiger we looked that tiger right in the eye for her it was her drinking for me it was her it was her um, it was the risk of losing her and we both emerged victorious <laughs> 